Hi everyone, my name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor in the School of Law at the University of Warwick. The following podcast is designed primarily for university students or those considering university studies. My aim is to provide you with a series of study tips, of thinking strategies, of even writing and exam taking strategies. Effectively, a series of tips that will help you progress through your degree more smoothly, with greater ease, and ideally will help you learn a little bit more along the way. These are a series of tips that I provide my own students, um, and it occurred to me that it might be of greater value to a wider pool of students out there. So I hope you enjoy the tips, and if there are any questions or queries, uh, comments you have, feel free to reach out to me via my personal website um, or via my work email. Thanks, and uh, happy listening. So... Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, second part in our series, series that's meant to assist you, to aid you, to help you when it comes to the study of law. So in the first series or in the first session, what we looked at was how to study law and it really how to study any subject. And I broke it down into three parts. Remember that triangular model? model. Um, the first part there was the data gathering, gathering data. The second part then, the conceptualization. The third part then, the articulation. I told you to take a balanced approach and really divvying up your time so as to dedicate roughly one third of your study time to each one of those activities. The idea is that all three activities combined, they complement one another. And by taking this tripartite approach, you're actually going to enhance then your understanding of the subject matter, but more importantly, improve your ability to deliver information about the law, to demonstrate that you comprehend the law, to articulate this in either textual form or orally. You'll be able to because you'll have that ability to navigate those three facets then of your learning. There's a great line by Thomas Edison. I think electricity, the light bulb, Thomas Edison. And he said, and I like the way he framed it, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Meaning that genius is ultimately hard work. Now, I like to go a little bit further and think that it's not just perspiration in the sense of sweating, working hard, but rather working smart. And recall what I said to you then last week when we discussed this. I said that studying itself is time and attention. And the mistake that students often make is they dedicate a great amount of time to activities that require a minimal amount of attention. So the gains that you make are very limited. And so the idea was, let us try to reduce the amount of time and increase the level of attention so as to enhance your productivity when you are in the process of studying. And the triangular model is one way of doing that. Now there is another, and that is what I'm going to share with you today. Today is primarily about legal reasoning. Legal reasoning. So you are studying law, you're coming forward to study law, and then as you are studying law, you are going to be carrying out different forms of legal analysis. 
you are going to be making legal arguments. You are going to be analyzing legal arguments, and so on. Now, this is what becomes particular about law, is that legal reasoning, or reasoning within law, has its own dimensions, its own strategies, its own techniques. And this is something that is often lost on students, or something that students are not taught. Instead, you're often taught the substantive bit, what is the argument, and not the other bit, which is how is the argument being made. And that is where legal reasoning comes in. Now, with the study of law, we start off by saying that there are largely two dominant approaches to the study of law. The first one is the doctrinal approach. And this is where you're dealing with doctrine. So you'll have texts, statutes, um, treaties, judgments, and so on. And you're looking at this and you're trying to extrapolate then from this a series of rules. Rules that can be applied in a future dispute, rules that can be um, utilized to understand what the obligations or the rights of your client happen to be. That is a doctrinal approach. It is a fine approach toward the study of law. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But bear in mind the presupposition underpinning this approach. And the presupposition is that the law itself is its own universe. So all I have to do is delve deep into this doctrine, into these rules, to understand what the rights and obligations are. Now that's the doctrinal approach. There is the contextual approach. And in the contextual approach, you don't just take these rules as a universe, the law is a universe, an autonomous universe unto itself, but rather this universe is one that we inhabit as well. So we as communities, as groups, as societies, construct this legal universe. And the way we construct this legal universe depends very much on our own aspirations, on our own cultural practices, on our own preferences, our partialities, and very much on the context within which we find ourselves. Hence why the law today is going to be different from the law in the next generation. Just as the law today is different from the law in the previous generation. Law is dynamic. So when you adopt a contextual approach, and that could mean a critical approach, a socio-legal, a feminist approach, a Marxist approach, an Islamic approach, each one of these is one that contextualizes it within a set of circumstances, within a particular context. You are contextualizing the study of law. Now that is another approach, equally valid then as the doctrinal approach when it comes to the study of law. Now the dominant one tends to be the doctrinal one, or even what we might often refer to as a formalistic approach. And it is one that requires knowledge of rules. So you study, as per the books here, you will study the Crimes Act. You will study contract law and you will look then to the jurisprudence surrounding contracts. How have disputes been resolved? If you are studying international law, you will look to treaties, conventions, the provisions within these treaties. You are studying then the rules. Now there are two types of rules that you'll normally study. One is substantive and the other is procedural. So, a procedural rule, the example, would be who has standing? Can I bring a criminal complaint against a five-year-old? Well, no. 
I cannot. Why? Because they happen to be under the age of maturity, under the age of criminal liability. Now that's a procedural rule. I just have to know it. It's as simple as that. There's nothing more to it. The substantive bit, the idea then of criminal liability, the idea of childhood, that's something else that we consider. So you're required to develop a type of mastery over both substantive rules, but also procedural rules. That is the object of study often in law schools. But this is where it gets interesting. How we study legal rules varies. Now listen to that. How we study legal rules varies. What I mean is that the way that we study a statute is different from the way that we would study a case and is different from the way that we would study a treaty. So if you're looking at a statute, you're going to focus largely on the legislature. What policy was the legislature pursuing? What was the intent when they adopted this law? What were they trying to regulate? Why did they deploy this type of language? That is what we are considering. When we study statutes, we are studying policy. But then when you are studying judgments, you are studying interpretation. Because the law is already in place. And what the judge is doing is ultimately resolving a dispute surrounding a series of facts in which that law is at issue. So now the intent behind it, the policy, while still relevant, is largely on the back burner. And what I am interested in is the provision or the provisions themselves and how they are meant to be applied. In other words, when I study judgments, I study how the judge interpreted the law. Not what the legislature intended, but how they interpreted it. With regards to the first set of rules, the statute, what I am interested in primarily is the policy. But when it comes to the judgment, I am interested in the approaches that have been adopted towards interpretation. And some of you will have studied this. The literal approach, you also have the mischief rule, the purposive approach. So it's trying to understand how exactly did the judge go about interpreting the law. When we look at theory, and all of you have had to or will have to take legal theory, in that instance, we are a little more focused on society and a little more focused on the underlying activity. This is where notions of morality come in, ethics, gender, right? power divisions, the state's command. So natural law, feminism, critical legal studies, legal positivism. But each one of those theories is interested primarily in the relations between legal subjects and how those relations manifest differently. So we're interested in the underlying activities. Now that distinction is crucial as students tend to jumble all of law together into one common pool. So when I read essays produced by students on a given subject, a statute is treated in almost the same way as a case, is treated almost the same way as a general principle. They're not distinguishing in how they're engaging with either the rule or the instrument. 
And it's vital to consider what exactly am I dealing with? So with the study of law, our interest is not just with the study of rules, substantive and procedural, but also how we tackle legal rules and importantly, and this comes to today's, the topic of today's session, how we tackle legal problems. And that is what I want us to focus on now. How are we tackling legal problems? Now, I'm going to begin with an exercise. And it's an exercise, just something I want you to reflect on over five to 10 seconds. So we're talking very brief reflection. I would assign, and I've done this in the past in an essay, I've assigned to students a statement. Democracy is an illusion. Discuss. Democracy is an illusion. Discuss. Well, all right, I'm told to discuss. That means they want me to explore that assertion. This is an assertion that's being made. Democracy is an illusion. All right, well, I have to define democracy and I have to define illusion to be able to answer it. But this is in the context of law, so what exactly does the lecturer mean when they say democracy is an illusion? Now that is a legal problem. Even if it's presented as an assertion, it is a legal problem. It is a legal problem by virtue that it's being assigned in the context of a legal module in a law school, but it's a legal problem because we know that democracy has to do with lawmaking, has to do with authority, has to do with the state, with the branches of government, all subjects that you yourselves have studied. So when I say democracy is an illusion, what is the next step? And I said to you, we are going to examine a technique, an approach toward tackling legal problems. Democracy and this illusion, that is the legal problem. How do we tackle it? And this is the acronym. And it's an acronym that you should either write down or memorize. The acronym is RIREAC. R-I-R-E-A-C. R-I-R-E-A-C. RIREAC. Now the first part of this, the R that we open in, open with, is the reference. The reference. Now this is what we refer to as a first level of thought. You have that statement, democracy is an illusion, but now I need a reference. As I said, how do you tackle it? I give you an example. Politicians are all the same. Democracy is an illusion, as politicians are all the same. There is not a dime's worth of difference between political parties. That could be a statement that someone would make to follow up from democracy as an illusion. Bankers make law. Hmm. Okay, bankers make law. Well, I know that bankers don't make law, but what is the implication? The implication is that the moneyed classes have exert great influence over lawmaking. Now that's different from politicians are all the same. Bankers make law. Let's consider a third one. Voters are imbeciles. 
Many of you have felt that. You've seen the outcome of a vote and you thought, if only the electorate were smarter. Voters are imbeciles, voters are cretins. We shouldn't even have voting. However you shape it. But that's a different one from politicians are all the same and bankers make policy. Try a fourth. The executive is overwhelming the legislative. Now let's consider each one of these. The first one, politicians are all the same, is suggesting a type of corruption within the legislative branch. Bankers make law. The argument is about undue influence wielded by the capitalist class, the moneyed classes, the moneyed elites. The next one, where we're looking at voters are imbeciles. We are interested now in the population, the electorate, the voters. So we're not looking at the legislative and we're not looking at undue influence from money. Instead, we are looking at inadequacies within or among the voting class. And the final one, is the tension that now exists between, or that has always existed perhaps, between the executive and the legislative. That puts the R in context. So if I say to you, democracy is an illusion, and you start to argue, democracy is an illusion because, well, you haven't framed, you haven't fenced the argument yet. And this is why with those type of statements, Students have a very difficult time as usually they engage in what we refer to as kitchen sink answers. Let me throw everything I know about democracy and all the arguments why it's an illusion. But then the essay lacks any structure. It lacks cohesion, it lacks coherence because you've just gone off on all kinds of tangents without any direction. You're flying in all ways, you're firing in every angle. So you begin then, this is the re-react form, when tackling a legal problem, you start with the reference. Now, which one makes more sense when I say democracy is an illusion? Does it make more sense to ta tackle flaws in the legislative? Tension between the legislative and the executive? Undue influence of certain groups? Which makes more sense? And that's the beauty of it. With legal problems, there are often, there are not any natural references. There's not something particular that I need to look for. Rather, I need to look for a reference that allows me to engage with the statement. So whatever the problem is, always ask yourself, in what context is this problem being posed to me? If it is a problem that is being posed, say, in international law, an international law module, well, it's probably not about a domestic issue. Why? Well, it's an international law module, so it couldn't be about a domestic issue. Well, if you're studying international law, you know that executives engage in the negotiations around treaties, and even if you don't, you're aware of Brexit and you know that it's Theresa May and the cabinet in the process of negotiating the UK's exit, meaning it's the executive branch. And we speak about the erosion of democracy because the executive branch has been challenged in court by the legislative. Each one making competing arguments as to who should have authority over the decision to withdraw 
from the EU, the Miller case. So then maybe that one lends itself more to the analysis of democracy as an illusion than the one about bankers or about voters. But if you are taking a law and sociology module, well then the bankers as a potentially social class or voters as a particular demographic become a lot more interesting than just the discussion, the debate, the tension between the legislative and the executive. So the reference is contingent on the context within which you're considering the problem. So you always ask yourself, what is the context for this problem? And then which reference am I going to settle on? And you know that when you choose to highlight one reference, you are also concealing, hiding others. That doesn't mean that the others are unimportant. It just means that the others are not the subject of your examination. You're tackling the problem in another way. So as I said to you, RIREAC, R-I-R-E-A-C. So the next then is the I. And the I is the issue. So I've decided that this problem, the statement, democracy is an illusion. I am studying this in the context of international law. I am studying in the context of international law, and I'm looking then at the tension between the executive and the legislative. But what's the issue? There is tension between the executive and the legislative? That's not an issue that I can examine in the context of a legal problem. I need something a little more concrete. And this is where I frame it, I frame the issue, and what I encourage you to do, do not frame your issue as a statement. Instead, frame your issue as a question. For example, can we infer from the executive's triggering of Article 50 that democracy is an illusion? Can we infer from the executive's triggering of Article 50 that democracy is an illusion? Now we're getting somewhere. We started off with the reference and we're interested then at the tension between these two branches of government and the implications of this tension for democracy, particularly because the executive has treaty-making power, which in the context of Article 50 translates into a type of law-making power. Does this mean because the executive has acquired or has triggered Article 50 that democracy is being eroded? Now there are some characteristics that it is useful to bear in mind in relation then to deciding the decision you're making around the issue. The first characteristic is always choose an issue that is manageable. So those statements or those essays that begin with a student saying democracy in the UK is waning, British democracy is on the decline, British democracy is no more, is not manageable because you're writing this either in the context of an exam or the context of an essay that's going to be a couple of thousand words. So there's no way that you can engage with that. It is far too vast. We are talking about a PhD here. So I need something first that is manageable. And second, I think of it in terms of suitability, that it is suitable. Now for that, again, we agreed on the reference. The context is going to drive the reference. Which module do I happen to be studying or engaging with this legal problem in? But I have to do that again in relation to the issue because I know that my module is broken down 
into a series of titles, fields, examinations. So I have to think, ah, well, what exactly were we doing this week? What is the lesson that the lecturer wants me to take away from this? Why are they even assigning this problem? So once I start asking those questions, now I begin to frame a potential issue. So if we were talking about Brexit, then maybe examining it through the Article 50 lens makes sense. So I asked the question, can we infer from the executive's triggering of Article 50 an erosion of democracy in the UK? It is manageable and it is suitable. Reference, issue, rule. Reference, issue, rule. So once you've stated the reference, you've identified the reference, how you're going to tackle this problem, and then from there you've gone into the issue and specified the question that you're going to look to answer, now we have to identify the rule. Again, this is legal reasoning. We are studying law, there are rules that we are dealing with. I said to you that most of the time we're dealing with doctrinal approaches toward the study of law, but we've already contextualized it. So we've brought in the contextual element, but now we get to the rules. Well, you can consider statutory instruments. You can look to jurisprudence, so cases. And you can also look to treaties, particularly because international law, supranational law, these have become so prevalent in the way the countries self-regulate. So I can look at all of those. And this is what's interesting. There is a symbiosis between all of these. Just looking at the statutes is obviously insufficient because you don't know how the statutes are being interpreted. So I have the policy, but I don't know how the courts are applying the law. But then if I don't consider the international or supranational obligations, then I also don't understand why these laws could potentially be in conflict with other obligations that have been established. So the UK has a series of obligations for A, belonging to a series of international agreements, and B, belonging to a supranational regime. So we have domestic laws, but we also have the supranational ones and the international ones. So there is a symbiosis between these three. Think Venn diagram. It's that point of overlap that I am interested in. But go back to what I said at the outset. The way we engage with different rules varies depending on the type of rule that you're engaging with. Do not mix them up, do not jumble, do not conflate them. Article 50 is part of the Lisbon Treaty. So I have to look to the Lisbon Treaty and Article 50, that provision. And then I look for jurisprudence to see other countries that have triggered Article 50, how is it dealt with? And what's the answer? It's never been dealt with. This is the first time that a member state has triggered Article 50. So all I can go by then is the policy underpinning it. But bear in mind here, what are we examining? This is not a case about Brexit. This is not a case about the UK's exit from the EU. This is a discussion about democracy being an illusion by examining whether Article 50, the triggering of Article 50 by the executive branch is eroding British democracy. So since that's what I'm looking at, I start with Article 50 in the treaty, but of course next I have to consider what? The Miller case. There's no way around it. I have a Supreme Court ruling specifically on the branches of government. 
and who has authority to trigger Article 50. So I have to look to that. But just as I'm looking at Article 50 through a policy lens, I'm looking at the Miller case through an interpretive lens. What did the court argue? How did the court argue it? Why did they argue it in that manner? But then what should I also consider? Well, I might consider the source then of the Miller case, the executive action. Because remember, the executive triggered Article 50. So what were the statements that were being made by the cabinet? The statements that were being made by the Attorney General? What did Theresa May say about Article 50? All of these become relevant because we're looking at executive action. And we're interested in understanding democracy through the lens of the tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch. So I have those three elements, all of which I have to study differently. I cannot study the statements made by May or by the Attorney General or by other cabinet members about how the executive has some type of prerogative over lawmaking. I cannot study that in the same way that I would study the Miller case. It doesn't make any sense. The Miller case is a Supreme Court judgment. Just as I can't study the Treaty of Lisbon in the same way. Because the Treaty of Lisbon is a treaty. So the way that I would approach each one would be different. Ah, but what am I missing now? What happened post-Miller? After the Miller decision, Miller decision came down, what did the Supreme Court say? Supreme Court said the executive does not have the authority to trigger Article 50. It must be an act of parliament because it's going to reduce the rights that are available to British citizens. That being the case, there must be an act of parliament. Has Article 50 been triggered? Yes, meaning there's an act of parliament out there. So after looking at all of this that points to the erosion or the illusion of democracy, I see that, lo and behold, there is a statutory instrument whereby the legislative is instructing the executive to trigger Article 50. Reference, issue, rule, explanation. E, explanation. This is where you go into the analysis, but not the analysis of the facts, the analysis of the subtext, the motivation behind the rule, the context. So this section you begin with, the UK is a member of the European Union. The European Union is an integration project, whereby a series of member states agree that they're going to integrate various aspects of their jurisdiction, their sovereign power. They're going to build supranational institutions that are going to mediate their affairs in relation to movement, in relation to goods, in relation to services, in relation to trade, so on and so forth. The UK, the decision to join the EU, is an executive decision, but an executive decision that ultimately must be ratified by Parliament. This is how we have set up a democratic form of international lawmaking by providing the legislative with authority over executive assent to international treaties. That is how we preserve the balance of power and the democratic character of Britain. That's the explanation.
This is why the rule's there. Article 50 is a provision within the treaty that allows a member state to exercise its sovereign right to withdraw from this integration project. And after I've explained the rule, the reference, the issue, the rule, the explanation, now I move to the analysis. And the analysis is that issue. I'm analyzing the issue that I raised earlier based upon the facts of this case. And what is the issue? The issue is whether triggering Article 50, triggering of Article 50 by the executive, can be understood and is, as an erosion of democracy. But notice as you've gone through this process, what do you have already? You have the analysis. So we know that the executive triggered it, and we know that they were challenged in court, and we know that the legislative won, and we know that ultimately the legislative is the one that triggered or that instructed the executive to trigger Article 50. So you have your analysis already. We've already gone over that. So all you're doing, you see the structure taking shape. So the analysis is practically done, but now you're relying on all the facts. Now, of course, as you're doing this in the beginning, going through the reference, the issue, you're not going to be providing as much information as I provided you. This is still a lesson. But as you're thinking of it in this way, it lends itself to a conclusion. And what's the natural conclusion now? If you consider legislative power as an example of democratic power, then there is no erosion, as it is the legislative that instructed the executive to trigger Article 50. So yes, there was a power play on the part of the executive. They did try to trigger it themselves, but they were slapped down by the judiciary, and the legislative is the one that ultimately had to instruct the executive, thereby reinforcing the supremacy of parliament over the cabinet. Done. Reference, issue, rule, explanation, analysis or application, conclusion. A very straightforward way of tackling a legal problem. So you don't just launch into democracy is an illusion, what is democracy, what is the illusion? No, no, you put it within a particular context. You identify the issue you are going to tackle. You identify the relevant rules. You explain the rules so I understand that you know what the rules are about and you're able to tell me what the rules are about. You analyze it in relation to the facts, you apply the law to the facts, and you extrapolate your conclusion. And there you are done. But that only takes us through the form then of legal reasoning. This is the form. So if you were to write an essay, if you were to take an exam, you just have to make sure you go through these steps. You cover these steps, you have a very neat structure. Can you begin with the conclusion? There is no erosion of democracy in the UK? Sure, you can begin with that. Can you begin with the analysis? Probably not, doesn't really make any sense because I don't know which facts you're analyzing. I don't know which barometer, meaning which laws you're applying. I don't know how you're even looking at the problem. So the order is there merely to streamline the analysis. And what you will see whenever you read judgments is precisely that. The judges will tell you how they're going to look at the problem. They are framing the problem, fencing the problem. They will often tell you how they're not looking at the problem. 
It is not a problem of this. They'll tell you the issue that they're examining, which rules they're relying upon. They interpret the rules, they apply the rules or the interpretation to the facts, and they conclude, they render judgment, and it is done. But that is only part of the exercise. And this is where we get into different forms of legal reasoning, meaning different forms of analysis, different forms of application, how in fact we make a legal argument. We'll take a five minute break, stretch your legs a little bit, and then we'll resume. If you have any questions, by the way, feel free to fire away. Either interrupt me, I know many of you are taking notes diligently, Many of you, not all of you, but many of you are. But if you ever have any questions, feel free, as I said, just to pose, interrupt. Here's the way of looking at it, George. Consider that anybody who is evaluating any type of legal problem, whether you're coming at it from the perspective of a lawyer, coming at it from the perspective of a judge, or as a law prof, you're always going to look to say, okay, well, how are they tackling this contract problem? Right? Well, they're tackling it as a breach. All right. Well, a breach as in an act of God type of breach? <laughs> or is it a deliberate kind of breach? Ah, it's a deliberate breach. Okay, that is the frame then. That is the reference. We're looking at it as deliberate breach. So I'm not, I don't concern myself with the act of God element. I don't concern myself with the unconscionability of the terms. Those are other topics that aren't relevant to this analysis. So it's not that. So I could even start off by saying, I realize that my learned Fred is arguing that it has to do with the unconscionability of the terms, but in fact, they're mistaken. That was already dealt with in this case, and this is not an instance of unconscionability. This has to do with a deliberate breach. That is the frame. What I am going to examine here is why this qualifies as deliberate and why then they should be held accountable for that breach. There's my issue. Right? The relevant rules in this case are this, this, and that, and so on. According to the courts in these cases, the following. The facts of this case are such that these cases apply. Does it matter if it's a contract law or if it's a public law constitutional issue? Not at all. In law, this is always what we do, we frame. And once we frame, we have to identify, you've heard the phrase issue spotting, identify the issue. What is the issue here? Well, if it's an unconscionability of terms, that's what it is. So I look at unconscionability or unreasonableness and such. But if it's not that, then I'm not looking at that, so that can't be the issue. So do I think it can apply in any module? Yes, I think so, any law module. I don't see why not. It's just a form and approach to thinking towards a legal law problem. So this is where, as I said, I took the context, I had to look at it through the lens. Now it's different if I'm dealing with a client. So if I think then back in the days when I was practicing, so somebody would come to see me and they'd say, this happened. And then I have to determine what kind of an issue is it? Is it a contractual issue? Is it a tortious issue? Is there a criminal complaint that should be filed? What exactly is it? So you have that. But in your case, you're taking this as part of a module. So similar to the seminars that you're doing with me, and you notice then that immediately we're saying, okay, well, what was the lesson that we looked at last week? So you have to frame it in some way. So you look for hints. You look for guidance. And the guidance can often be found in the text that you're reading. 
or in the lectures themselves or in the stage of the module that you happen to find yourself in. So that can be a guide. So this is where you say in terms of how I'm framing it, if I'm presenting, imagine this, I present two countries that are in a dispute over the terms of a treaty and how that treaty should be interpreted. Which rule comes to mind to you? Thinking then what we studied about sources. Presumably the Vienna Convention, because it has to do with the interpretation of the treaties. It's simple as that. So immediately I know this is a treaty issue, so it's a sources of international law issue. And how is this being interpreted? So the relevant rule is the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Everything falls into place once you try to contextualize it in relation to the activity that you're carrying out. So to go back to what I said before in terms of the bankers and the voters, there is no natural reference. There's no natural reference. And that's the skill then that a law student should develop and that a lawyer must possess is the ability to eliminate the noise, to say, this is what's relevant here. All that other stuff, red herrings, right? Noise, window dressing, this is what matters. And then, because of the nature of law is based on arguments, as we're going to see now, you're going to make an argument that supports your position. So it depends then on the persuasiveness of your argument. So could I persuade you that this is an international law matter through the lens of the banker's influence over policy? It's, it's just, it's not so natural. You could, you bring in the WTO and international organizations and you could look at actors involved that might also be bankers, but it becomes so convoluted, obviously that's not what you're being asked in the context of an exam or an essay. Clearly, it must be something else. So that is where I say, don't complicate it for yourselves. Look at what seems natural, the natural fit. Um, all right, so shall we resume? All right, so in law, the analysis portion, the application portion, is often presented in the form of an argument. Now this makes sense as the dominant approach towards law these days is an adversarial one. We have parties, right? oppositional parties, you have a neutral arbiter who is there to resolve the dispute between these parties, so each one is presenting an argument. Now often what you'll see is that there's agreement on the facts, sometimes they're disputed, but often there's agreement on the facts, and there's even agreement on the law which is the relevant law. Where the disagreement emerges is in the argument that's being made. And of course, they would be making op oppositional arguments as each one is trying to achieve an opposing outcome. Well, how then do you make the argument? Well, the question then is, what is an argument? Now, an argument is relatively straightforward. An argument is A, a set of propositions. So it's a set of propositions. Democracy is an illusion is not an argument. Democracy is an illusion, is an assertion. It is a proposition. It is a declaration. Might even be a conclusion, but it could be an introduction also. It is not an argument because it is not a set of propositions. An argument is a set of propositions. A set of propositions 
where the conclusion follows from the premises. The conclusion follows from the premises. So whatever I say in the beginning leads to the next proposition, to the next one, logically to my conclusion. So if I were to say, it's raining today, I will wear yellow socks. You think the proposition, the conclusion doesn't follow from the proposition. It's raining today, that's an assertion, but it's a proposition. And there, the next one is, I will wear yellow socks. Had I said, I will wear gumboots, well, that makes sense, because it's raining, so I will wear rain boots. That makes sense. But I will wear yellow socks. That's a non sequitur. That conclusion does not follow from that proposition. So we have to look for logic, then, a form of logic that leads us from one proposition, two propositions, three propositions, to a conclusion. But this is what's important here. When making arguments, we are making valid arguments or invalid arguments. We are not making true arguments or false arguments. That could be an invalid conclusion, but it could still be true. So, if I were wearing, am I? Hey, I have some yellow on my socks. <laughs> Look at that. So I do have yellow on my socks. So that conclusion is true. But is it a valid conclusion based on the proposition that preceded it? And the answer is no. It's an invalid conclusion. So always be careful. When people are making arguments, are they making valid arguments? or invalid arguments. And to know that, I have to be able to deconstruct the argument into a series of propositions and necessarily into a conclusion. So if I were to say to you, legal education is a sound investment. Conversely, legal education is a risky investment. Well, both of those are assertions potentially conclusions, but potentially the initial proposition. But neither of those are arguments. You are merely taking a position, but no argument has been shaped yet. So when we are building arguments, we are thinking in terms of the influence that the argument is going to have on the audience. I make an argument, not just for the fun of it, rarely do people make arguments to themselves, they will make arguments to others. In that a persuasive argument can lead to belief, it can lead to action. If I say something to you that is persuasive, I can get you to endorse my view, to believe what I'm telling you, and ultimately to take action based upon that. So as we like to use right, often, Brexit and the big red bus. The big red bus, 350 million a week to the NHS. 
Now that was presented, we had leave the EU 350 million to the NHS weekly. But does this conclusion flow from this proposition? Is this a valid conclusion? It might be, but there were a series of propositions in between that are missing. But it didn't matter that they were missing because I managed with this very persuasive conclusion to get people to vote. Belief and action. That is the power of an argument. But let us also be clear. There's a difference between an argument and rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is the ability to influence, the ability to sway. So when you listen then to, say, use an easy example, Donald Trump, many of the people who are listening to him are motivated, inspired by the charisma they see in him, the things that he says. The things that he says are often non sequiturs. There is no link between the initial proposition and the conclusion. They are often not fact-based. And even when facts are presented to the contrary, the fact is itself irrelevant because people have been caught up in the rhetoric. That is what we refer to as demagogues. So here, when we're making an argument, we are interested in rational belief. Not just belief, but rational belief. Now, of course, just to be clear, arguments are not foolproof. The example, Trump. It doesn't matter that he's speaking a bunch of nonsense. People are still voting in favor. The argument could be made, it's not rational. It is merely rhetorical, and charisma wins votes. Now, that's an interesting argument. Voting is not rational, charisma wins votes. Proposition, conclusion. Pretty persuasive, I would say. Just those two statements. Now, this brings us then to arguments that we make in law. So in law, we make arguments all the time. As I said to you, with the re-react form, when you come to the A, to the analysis, the application, you are making an argument because we have an adversarial system. Now, there are two questions that you should always ask yourself in relation to an argument. The first one, as I said to you before, what is the argument? What is the argument that is being made? And the second one, how is the argument being made? The how. Now, there are three forms that dominate in law. And you can see these forms often if you read judgments or statutes closely. And for those of you who have studied philosophy or studied logic, these forms will be familiar to you. We have deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and analogical reasoning. Those three forms, deductive, inductive, analogical. Now with deductive reasoning, very simple, we are reasoning from a general rule to a specific case. A general rule to a specific case. 
Again, anyone who has studied logic will know this one. We start with a major premise, the general rule. We test a minor premise against the general rule. We reach our conclusion. So, Socrates, all men are mortal. Today we'll be politically correct. All people are mortal. But let's go with Socrates, and there's a reason for this. All men are mortal. Major premise. General rule. Socrates is a man. Minor premise. Fact. It has to do with the individual. Socrates is mortal. Simple as that. Now, does this mean, then, that Seneba is mortal? Well, no. Because I said all men are mortal. And Seneba is a woman. So it doesn't apply in that case. So when we have a general rule, a major premise that is true, all men are mortal. Has there ever been someone who's immortal? No. So this is true. Socrates is a man. Is this true? Yes. Socrates is mortal. There are no questions about it. Deductive reasoning. That is, you would call that the holy grail then of legal reasoning. And if you can find that in a judgment or in a law, you're sitting pretty. Because the conclusion you reach, you know, is airtight, is foolproof. And there are examples of this. Anyone who's interested later in digging around a little bit, have a look at the UK's law on psychoactive substances. This was a law that was adopted in 2016, the Psychoactive Substances Act. And it follows perfect deductive reasoning. It starts off by saying, how do they frame it? All substances that cause psychoactive effects are prohibited. Anyone who consumes a psychoactive substance is guilty of this type of offense, punishable by so on and so forth. So, Mohsen consumed cocaine. General rule, psychoactive substances prohibited. Cocaine is a psychoactive substance, has psychoactive effects. Mohsen consumed cocaine. Mohsen is guilty of violating the Psychoactive Substances Act. Straightforward. But this is where it gets a little more complex. Anyone here eat a banana today? What? You consumed a psychoactive substance. Anyone have coffee? Right? Psychoactive substance. Anyone eat sugar? <laughs> You've consumed a psychoactive substance. And this is where specifically, in the law itself, they specify that unless the substance appears in Schedule 1. Schedule 1 includes the exceptions. And what do they have in Schedule 1? Foods, nicotine, tobacco, alcohol, pharmaceuticals. Now let me ask you this. Why then did the state take that approach? 
why did Parliament see fit to prohibit all substances that have psychoactive effects, rather than just naming the ones they wanted to prohibit? So there's the potential then that we could synthesize chemically new psychoactive substances, and then you would have to continuously revise the list. Anyone heard of legal highs? So with legal highs, these are legal. There are a series of substances that are freely available that when combined will trigger sometimes a very severe psychoactive effect. So rather than chase all these new highs and keep prohibiting these new compounds, the state just said, to hell with that, all are prohibited unless here. Perfect form of deductive reasoning. We don't come across these often. When we do, as I said, you're sitting pretty. But it doesn't happen often, which is why we need to be familiar then with the second form, and that is inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning. Now, with inductive reasoning, we are reasoning from specific cases to a general rule. We are reasoning from specific cases to a general rule. This is the bread and butter of law students, of law profs, of lawyers. This is what we do, particularly in common law. Less so in civil law systems, but certainly so in common law. And what do we do? You were involved in a case that related to the issue. You were involved in a case that related to this issue. You were involved in a case as well. And I look then at the three of them. And I see how were these matters resolved by the courts. Specific, specific, specific. And I try to extrapolate from this a general rule. Example, I were to see in an act reference to a vehicle. Does that include a scooter? Is a scooter a vehicle? Is a skateboard a vehicle? Some are shaking their head no, and others are shaking their head yes. Well, can I try this? All vehicles, what? Have wheels? Probably won't work so well. Why? Because we've all seen little kids riding around <laughs> on their sneakers with wheels, right? Are they a vehicle? Probably not. <laughs> so that doesn't work. I cannot, it's difficult for me to conceptualize this as a general rule. So since I don't know, I have to look at how then the courts have defined vehicles. So I look for all those cases in which this particular provision, the definition of vehicle, was at issue, and I see that this individual was riding a bicycle and the court deemed it a vehicle. This one, they were riding a moped. Ah, different. Push bike, motorized. Different, but both of these were deemed vehicles. So now I think to myself, must a vehicle have four wheels? No, I already know now that two wheels are adequate. She was riding a unicycle, deemed a vehicle. Ah, she was riding a skateboard not deemed a vehicle. Four wheels, one wheel, two, two. She was driving a car, that was a vehicle. 
Well, that's four wheels and four wheels. So it didn't turn on the wheels. What did it turn on then? Seat? Maybe that? Commonality? They were sitting? She's got skills. She was sitting on the board. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe where the vehicle happened to be. On the road, on the road, on the road, on the road, on the footpath. Ah, maybe that is it. So I extrapolate from these that a vehicle has wheels and is mobile on a street. So then I look at my own case to see, did this involve wheels and was it on the street? Inductive. I am inducing a general rule from a series of specific cases. Now, why am I raising this? Even though some of you are very familiar with this form of argumentation, I can see you nodding along, you get it. What do students forever do when there was a student who came by to see me yesterday, came to my office and was pointing to their essay and was disappointed with the mark? Someone else had given them the mark. I am their personal 2T and I was reviewing it for them and trying to explain why they got the mark that they did. And they had a series of cases. And in each case, they summarized. This is what took place in that case. This is what the court concluded. This is what happened in this case. This is what the court concluded. And then they came to the final paragraph and they said, all of this provides evidence of the following. But there was no attempt to extrapolate any type of general rule that they could then apply to the facts, all they did was reach a conclusion by describing a series of cases. So go back to the RERIAC form, the reference, the issue, the rule, the explanation, and the analysis. So in the analysis, I'm trying to make an argument that my client was not riding a vehicle, even though they happened to be on a scooter, none of you were on a scooter, none of those cases were about scooters, even though they were on a scooter, even though they were standing, even though they were on wheels, they were not riding a vehicle. Why? All of these cases lead me to the proposition that a vehicle must be on a street. They were on a footpath. So then I conclude they were not riding a vehicle, meaning they were not in breach of the Vehicles Act. So this is how we induce a general rule from a series of cases. So it's not just talking about the cases, rather it's trying to extrapolate some rule. So with deductive, begin with a general rule, apply the general rule to a specific case. With inductive, a series of cases, and you're extrapolating from that a general rule that you are then going to apply. Third form of logic, analogical reasoning. This is probably the most clever form of argument you can make. And if you hear a judge or a lawyer make a good analogy, particularly a lawyer, chances are they'll win the case. Uh, Analogy is a very powerful argument because it possesses that persuasiveness, but there's also creativity, creativity which can be, right, that uh, points to a bit of charm, a bit of enjoyment, 
when you hear that really good analogy, and all of you have heard it before, you think, ooh, yeah, they got it. That analogy really goes a long way. So I often encourage students to consider this even though it's the most difficult argument to make. Most difficult form, why? You are reasoning from the specific to the specific. Now before it's the general to the specific, then it's the specific to the general, but here you are only reasoning from the specific to the specific. Now what does that mean? The argument that you are making is that because two items are alike in one respect, they should be treated as alike in another respect. Now, one of my favorite examples, which will help you understand it, is one that actually comes from a debate within Islamic law. So within Islamic law, there was a question about the legal status of hash. Why? There is nothing in the Quran, one of the primary sources. There is nothing in the prophetic traditions, another primary source, about hash. There is a prohibition on the consumption of alcohol, but there isn't anything on hash. And then if you think of the time then when the Quran was revealed, you say, ah, okay, well, I get it. There wouldn't be anything about legal highs. There probably isn't anything on cocaine, maybe not heroin. All of these things wouldn't have been because these are later creations. So how do you deal this in, as a legal system? Do you say, well, this is prohibited, alcohol is prohibited, cocaine is not, meaning I'm permitted to consume cocaine. There's nothing in there, there's no prohibition on it. Analogical reasoning. And this is where the propositions come out. Remember, propositions that lead to a valid conclusion. Start off with, why is alcohol prohibited? And you dig through the text and you see alcohol is prohibited because of the psychoactive effect and the loss of control over human faculties. You lose that ability, that sense of control. Now, cocaine is not prohibited, but cocaine has psychoactive effects. But that is insufficient. Why? As we said, bananas have psychoactive effects. Sugar has psychoactive effects. Coffee, psychoactive effects. But no, I don't think anybody would make an argument that those are prohibited within Islamic law. But with cocaine, we said it has psychoactive effects. Psychoactive effects that inhibit cognitive faculties. Because it is like in that way, it should be treated the same as alcohol, meaning it should be prohibited. But this is by analogy. So once I've done it with cocaine, does this apply to every other substance? No, that is the nature of an analogy. An analogy, I'm not extrapolating any type of general rule. I do that with inductive reasoning, but I don't do that with analogical reasoning. So each one of these forms of argumentation are relevant then in that analysis portion of the RIRIAC form. And I encourage you when you're reading cases, when you're studying cases, when you're making arguments, asking yourself, am I beginning with a general rule? Am I looking at specific cases? Am I trying to make an argument that only applies in this particular case? What in fact am I trying to do? 
And in the final five minutes, I'd like us to try this as an exercise. Now, normally I would run this session as a workshop. We had anticipated a fewer, maybe a larger group. And so we didn't plan to run this as a workshop. But normally I would, and I would have you go through each exercise the way we've done it. So rather than me tell you everything that I said, I would have you work through it, and then after that we would go to the general rules. But there is an exercise that I would like you to try now. And so I'd like to tell you a little bit about a case. And this is the known as the Pickles v. Bradford case. Has anyone studied Pickles yet? No one? All right. Fantastic property law case. Pickles v. Bradford, we're talking from the 18th century. Pickles, Edward Pickles, I believe, owns a piece of land on the high ground. And there is a stream that runs through his land and that goes down the hill and reaches the Bradford community. There's a town in the UK, in England, called Bradford. So it reaches Bradford. And it fills then, this is what the water source then, for the Bradford community. So what does Edward Pickles do? Edward Pickles says, I'm getting up there in age. I'm looking to retire. I wouldn't mind selling this land to Bradford. So let me go ahead and dam the stream. Let me starve them of water. And then I can increase the price of my land. That's precisely it. What? Terrible behavior. How could somebody be so malicious? No, no. This is precisely what happened. He's on his land. He builds a dam. And sure enough, it begins to starve the Bradford community of water. The Bradford community brings a lawsuit against him, arguing that his behavior was illegal. So now, Imagine you're on both sides of this. On one hand, you're representing Pickles, and on the other hand, you are representing Bradford. What type of an argument would you make? Can you make a deductive-based argument? Is it possible to make an inductive one? Is there an analogy here that could prove useful? I'd like you to take a moment and just work in pairs. We won't spend too much time on it, but seeing. If I wanted to make a deductive argument, what type of general rule would there have to be? A general principle that I would have to abide by? How would I do that? If it's inductive, what type of cases am I looking for? Cases that are going to help demonstrate what? Is there an analogy that comes to mind that's particularly useful here? So just take three minutes now, together in pairs. So one minute each to examine it from a deductive and an inductive and an analogical, and then we'll reconvene. So why don't we just go with the two of you, two of you, two of you. Senabar, you want to go with Penda? Two of you, two and two. Okay, so let me give you a hint that I just gave a couple of the other groups. Bear in mind that you have to make a determination beforehand how you're going to approach the problem. So that was almost the trick that I was playing on you. You can't go straight into the analysis without deciding the reference. Are you approaching this from a public resources perspective, a common heritage perspective, a private property perspective, an individual rights perspective? That reference has to be decided beforehand, and only then can you start looking at general rules, type of cases, and such. The reference is always essential. All right, let's go ahead and reconvene. So, reference. 
how did you approach the problem? How did you tackle it? Private property standpoint, were you able to elaborate any type of a general rule? Okay, so there you're still, you're, you're reaching the general rule, but if you're taking an inductive approach, you have to look for cases. So this is where we would have to look for cases in which an owner was afforded significant rights, even rights that may have appeared malicious in their use, since he was behaving ultimately maliciously. So those are the type of cases you would look for. Others? Property rights also? Okay. Mm. Okay, interesting. Both of them came at it through. Notice, they both came at it. They framed it as a property problem. But they were seeing it more as a land issue, and they were treating it more as a resource issue. And their consideration was very much through the lens of collective ownership, and theirs was private ownership. So notice now, both of them are framing it differently. Which is the natural approach? There is no natural approach. Each one is valid if the propositions lead to the conclusion that they reach. But right now, all they were doing was framing it then. What did you come up with? All oh, right, interesting. So you came at it from a communal rights perspective. So there are similarities here, but they started off with property and you started off with human rights. Now, admittedly, the notion of human rights didn't in fact exist in the 18th century, so it would have been difficult for the House of Lords to reason it in that way, but that's irrelevant. Now, what we are considering then is the reference itself. Now, normally you would go a little bit further and you would say, ah, but if human rights didn't exist at the time, I probably shouldn't conceptualize it in that way. So maybe I would look more about, as you said, communal rights. So not so much human rights as communal rights. And is there such a thing as communal rights? You start off that way. Now this is where you start to think in terms of what type of evidence do I need? What type of rules can I use? There was no statute to deal with. The type of statutes that we have, the vast majority of statutes, I believe it's somewhere around 95% of statutes in the UK, were drafted from the mid-19th century onwards. Even though there were statutes that predated, the Magna Carta, for example, goes back several generations, 95%, so you don't have it. So all you have is the House of Lords trying then, from an inductive approach, to extrapolate a rule. But what if there aren't enough cases for you to extrapolate a rule? What do you do? You can create a rule, and that's actually what the House of Lords ultimately did. They created a rule. But another way that I'd hope that you would think about would be an analogical approach. <laughs> because then all you need is a single case, and you're looking at like elements. And you're saying, because it resembles it in this way, it should be treated in the same as that way. Now, of course, there was an artificiality to this problem. You didn't have the full case. You don't have any of the jurisprudence of the time and such. But rather, I wanted you to realize that you cannot proceed without the reference. So when you asked me earlier, George, can I apply this in any field? Well, we already did it in public law, and we can do it in international law. And right now, we were doing it in property law. So really, in the end, you can apply it in any field. Begin with the reference. And then from there, identify what is the issue. That would be the next step before you get to the form of the argument. Though, for example, one way of framing the issue and the way that the House of Lords framed it is 
the malicious use of property permitted? Is the malicious use of property permitted? That was their concern. Can I behave with malice if I am the owner of the land? That was it. That was the way they framed it. They didn't frame it in that way. They didn't frame it in that way. They went in that way. That was how they dealt with it. Each one of those is valid so long as you have an argument that you can make that leads you to a valid conclusion. Right? So that brings us then to the end of this session um, on legal reasoning. Hopefully you found the ReReact form useful. Hopefully you find these forms of argumentation useful. Remember what I said at the beginning, Thomas Edison, 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. Make the effort, practice these over and over and over, and then you will develop mastery over legal reasoning. Right? So see everyone at the next one. All right? Thanks.